You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is George Cave. George is a, a, a former colleague, someone I've known for many years. He is a virtual legend in the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, in its clandestine service. He has had a long association with the Middle East. Uh, he is an Arabic speaker. He has served in senior positions, including as chief of station uh, in the Middle East. And he has been an advisor to senior officials in our country about the Middle East for years, up to and including the president. So let me welcome you, George, and just to ask you right off the bat um, how you came to join the agency. That's a very interesting question because I was all set up for a career in the oil business. And in, at the end of my junior year in college, uh, I met this gorgeous strawberry blonde and we decided to get married. Now, Aramco wanted to hire me. They, at the end of my junior year, I went out to Saudi Arabia with them as an intern. And when I got back, they called me to New York and offered me a very good job. But they asked me to delay the, my wedding. Uh, and they said, as soon as you graduate, we'll send you out, and then we'll bring you back in nine months and get married, and we'll pay for the honeymoon. But my wife-to-be and I decided that we wanted to get married. So what Aramco then did, said, look, take a job with one of the parent companies for a year, and uh, then it, because then we'll have, uh, we'll, we'll have a place for your wife, uh, you and your wife to stay. They had a policy of, of not sending men out and leaving their wives behind. Uh, what was interesting is that I was talking to three different oil companies and then uh, a representative from the CIA came to Princeton. Uh, it was uh, in, during my senior year and offered me a better job than any of the oil companies. So I said, what the hell, I'll do it for a year and then go back, uh, go back, go see Aramco. And uh, I was taken on board in October of 1956. And by that time, I already had fluent Farsi. And 
there was suddenly an urgent need for a fluent Farsi speaker in Kabul, because at that time, the official language of Afghanistan was Farsi. So I was in training at the farm, and they called me in and said, when you leave Friday, take all your junk with you because you're not coming back. And I thought, oh, what the hell, what's happened? And um, I came home and told my, told my wife, and I reported to my JOT case officer on Monday, and he said, they want you to go to Kabul because they need someone with fluent, absolute fluent Parsi. So I, of course, agreed to go. And, um, and they, my JOT case officer was a nice guy. He came out and took my wife and I to dinner and explained to her everything. And I got to Kabul in January of 1957 and had a fabulous time. Um, the I ended up... Uh, running the best operation the station had, and which we were getting everything that uh, the Russians were doing in Afghanistan, plus one of the most interesting things I ever translated in my life was the minutes of a meeting between Cho and Lai and the Afghan Prime Minister Daoud. Cho and Lai was an absolute brilliant manipulator of people. I mean, uh, it was obvious from uh, Dawood's uh, comments that he was greatly impressed with Zhou Enlai. Now, what had happened is that in November of 1956, Bulganin and Khrushchev paid an official visit to uh, Afghanistan and gave the Afghans a $100 million loan, which was big bucks back in 1956. And it was a kind of a minor panic in Washington. Herbert Hoover Jr. Uh, that was the Under Secretary of State, and he called Dulles and said, "We want you to beef up your station and find out precisely what the Russians are doing." And what Eisenhower did at the same time, he he oh, uh, told the intelligence community to come up with an assessment of the strategic value of Afghanistan to the United States and, you know, what is our real strategic interest in Afghanistan. So in May of 1957, the intelligence community determined that Afghanistan was of no strategic interest to the United States and it would be no great strategic loss if it was subsumed within the Soviet Union. This was very fortunate for me because everyone calmed down and I was able to come back home in June, June of 1957. But that sold me on the agency, that TDY. All right. Uh, I'm just going to inter interject here and, and note that when you refer to being a, a JOT, that meant junior officer trainee, which is what all of us were when oh, we sorry. entered the agency at that time. And you also referred to Cho Enlai, who, of course, was the Prime uh, Minister, the, the Foreign Minister. Yeah, Foreign Minister of of, of China at the time, and uh, you referred, of course, to Khrushchev. Let me ask you a tough question. Well, uh, uh, you said that you had become fluent in Farsi. That was after how long a period of time being in country? Uh, that was I, 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 as of that time. I had never been to Iran. What I what happened was is. When I was in the Army, I, I was in the um, Army Security Agency, 
and I was in signal school at uh, Fort Monmouth when they came around and gave about a thousand of us language aptitude tests. And the aptitude test was in, oh, what the hell was that language? Um, you know. Swahili or? No, no, it's the, <laughs> it's the one that was designed for all purposes. Oh, Esperanto? Yeah. Esperanto. Okay. And mm. they took the 16 best grades and sent us down to Arlington Hall. And then in May um, of 1948, I got called in and the sergeant was there and, and he said, okay, kid, the Army's decided that you can learn a language. I'm going to read off a list of languages. Pick the one you want. So we, he's reading down, you know, with his Korean, Russian, uh, Serbo, Herbert, Croatian, and um, Polish. Uh, and, and then he said, Persian. I said, I'll take that. <laughs> and he said, why do you want to learn Persian? I said, it sounds more exotic than any of the other one. So I went to Monterey for a year. For a year, mm -hmm. and then after I got out of the army, I, uh, I went to I got a scholarship to Princeton, which is where I wanted to go because at that time it was the only the only college that had a um, a full program in Middle Eastern studies. In fact, there was so few people interested in Middle Eastern studies at the time I went to Princeton that I was the only person in most of my classes for my major. That's amazing, but that fluency, people ask about this all the time, <clears throat> interested in careers and intelligence, that fluency you developed in Farsi served you the rest of your career. That's I true. Mean, you, were head, you were head and shoulders above virtually all of your colleagues. The other and, question and, I want... And one thing that I might interrupt. Yes. I first studied Arabic in college. I took a year of classical Arabic. And knowing class, while studying classical Arabic, you would be surprised to know who I met. All right. Who? Albert Einstein. Oh, for heaven's sake. We had we were on the third floor of, of Firestone Library, the, the Middle Eastern Studies thing. It was very small. And we had but we had this nice room with, you know, all kinds of research books, et cetera, et cetera. And I was there translating Arabic into into English. And Einstein was taking some people around the library because right next to us was this huge tech, it's a Talmudic text collection. And he just happened to show people that this is for the Middle Eastern studies people. And he looked, and I was in there translating, he looked at it and he came over and he said to me, I see you're studying Arabic. And I said, yes, Dr. Einstein. And he said, so am I, because he was fascinated. Arabic is a very primitive language. And it's the only language that is based on a mathematical matrix. And where the word fits in that matrix is what, the, what uh, derives the meaning of the word. Did you become fluent in Arabic? Uh, yes, I did. I, I, uh, after I finished in Tehran in 19, uh, uh, 1963, I went on a direct transfer to Beirut and spent five years there. Incidentally, back in those days, when we went overseas, we spent a long time in one place, as you know. Yes. As, um, I, I want to ask you one more thing <clears throat> about your career. It is interesting to me that you only had a very limited amount of training at the farm uh, or, before you were sent out, and yet you seem to have been what I would call a natural. You seem to have an instinct for the business. Where does that come from? 
I'll, I'll get to that. Now, listen, here's something interesting. So I come back from Afghanistan, having run this really good operation, and the, the uh, chief of station at the, uh, at the time there was, uh, was you know, very grateful, gave me a very good rating, and I got promoted to 11 that summer. GS-11. GS-11. And uh, what I did in, in August, I went into training, and I was in the third ops course that was run at the farm. And there were 42 of us. And it's interesting that almost all of us has served in the military. We were all male and we were all white. Uh, and everyone was in great physical shape. The, um, I was next to last in the class, rated next to last in the class. And um, I almost didn't get the Tehran assignment. And uh, the decision to uh, send me to Tehran was based on the fact that I had flown Farsi. And, and was that your assignment right after the farm you were sent? Yeah. And how long would you spend there? Uh, the, the first tour in Iran was five years. I was there from 1958 to 1963. Okay. And then a direct transfer to Beirut for five years. Can you tell us something about your, your tour in, in Tehran? Was this during the period then... Of the the Shah had returned in 1953. Is that right? That's right. So what then was the situation in in Tehran when you were there? Uh, by the time I got there, the National Front had reconstituted itself. Um, Mossadegh had been um, tried and sentenced to internal exile in his village of Alabad, and. Uh, no one, none of, only one member of the National Front, the guy who was his secretary, Nusratullah Amini, was allowed to go see him. And uh, it's very interesting uh, is that um, there were beginning to be demonstrations and they increased in intensity in 1959 and 1960. And by 1960, there was uh, a real debate going on within the U.S. government, and particularly the U.S. Embassy, of what U.S. policy should be toward Iran. Should we support a, uh, a nationalist government or uh, support the Shah? Well, an interesting thing is that um, I got there in, 19, in May of 1958, and when the July 14th revolution occurred in Iraq, the Shah was on a trip to Europe, an official visit, and he came back about a week after the Iraqi coup, and he had had his plane, he told the pilot to stop in Ankara, and he sent his military aide into the embassy to see our chief of station, and what he wanted the chief of station to do is get it an assessment from our chief of station in Tehran on what the situation was since he was going to be coming back the following day. Could you comment on, on, on the intelligence activities, agency activities during that period in Tehran? Uh, during that period in, in Tehran, well, as, as a result of the big propaganda machine we built up during the, Mos uh, the overthrow of Mossadegh, there were still remnants of it 
left. There was the station. We had um, uh, we and we had two branches basically. One was the PP branch that dealt in political things. I was there, and the other was the FI branch, which supposedly ran the penetrations. So, and uh, we did pretty well. Um, a great a great deal of the focus, though, was on um, our collection apparatus in Bashar, which was our best coverage of uh, satellite, uh, Soviet uh, rocket uh, experiments. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. You mentioned when we were chatting earlier what you considered probably the, a major political failure in in Tehran at that time, which which you observed, in other words, in dealing with the parties and the Shah. Yes, that's true. <clears throat> uh, the National Front uh, thought that it was getting enough support, and these, uh, these uh, demonstrations were increasingly uh, well attended, and particularly when a man named uh, Mohammad Darakshesh who was the head of the teachers' organization and eventually became uh, the Minister of Education and Culture in the Yamini government. But um, he, uh, he and his teachers started demonstrating in, in late 1960, early 1961, against the government. Um, so when Amini arrived, when in early 1961, uh, shortly after he became president, uh, President Kennedy decided to support the Shah, but he laid conditions on it. He said the Shah, the Shah had to produce a reform government, and um, also he had to accept Ali Amini, who was then ambassador in Washington as prime minister. Amini had a real problem in that he wasn't a politician as such, and that he had no political constituency. So coming, returning to Iran at a period of all this nationalist ferment, he spent a lot of time with the nationalists. And uh, eventually, the upcoming Majlis elections, he offered them 19 seats in the Majlis. That's how elections were back then in Tehran still are, um, and also th uh, three cabinet seats. 
Now, what the embassy did, both the station and the State Department, we spent an enormous amount of time talking to all the nationalists that we knew, encouraging them to accept Amini's offer. In the final analysis, right before the Majlis elections, they, uh, they, they turned down the offer. Well, Amini then resigned and moved to Paris and never came back to Iran. For heaven's sake, you know, I think sometimes the public, whether, you know, based on Hollywood movies and books and so forth, develop an image of sort of CIA officers in a stereotypical way and foreign service officers in a certain way. But I know when you and I were talking about the situation, you said that the feelings were so divided in the station, the CIA installation, uh, either pro-Shah or against the Shah, and that was also true in the embassy, that both the agency and the State Department conducted inspections, that is, IG inspections, in the wake of those of that return of those elections. That's absolutely true. Um, the uh, and it was it was not only in Tehran. If you go back and look at the New York Times at that time, the New York Times was stridently favoring the nationalists. This was a time when someone said that after all of the coups, pretty soon the only kings left are going to be on a deck of cards. <laughs> so the Shah was a little bit yancy at that period about what was going to happen to him, particularly after he had to divorce his, the love of his life, Soroya. What um, was the reason for that? You just remind they us. They found it out. They found out during a trip to the United States that no way she could she ever have children. Produce an heir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you went from that. Uh, you went absolutely. You went. You did what's called a lateral transfer. You went right from there to Beirut, didn't you? That's correct. Yes. I was, was overseas for was, ten straight years. For ten straight years. And what was that stint like? That tour in Beirut. That was a very turbulent period in Beirut. I, uh, actually, it was a paradise. It was called the Paris of the Middle East. Uh, the only hiccup was the uh, 1967 war, which didn't affect Lebanon very much at all. There was one funny thing that happened. Uh, the, Lebanese, the Lebanese Air Force managed to shoot down uh, an Israeli plane. And so to prove that they were doing something, they rushed the pilot into a television station and interviewed him. And and they asked him his name. They gave him his name and and and, and said, uh, "And you were you were born in Israel?" He says, "No, I was born in the Soviet Union." <laughs> and they stopped. <laughs> the screen went blank. Was that then? Did was that uh, other th other than the '67 war? Then it was a relatively yeah. peaceful time then, and it was peaceful after <clears throat> the '67 war. It didn't, things didn't get bad in, in Beirut until uh, 1972. But were were agency and intelligence activities then largely directed at, at trying to recruit people from the Soviet Union and other places like that? It sounds like. The domestic target was relatively tranquil. Well, actually, it was it was kind of an intelligence paradise because there were all kind there were all kinds of interesting people. I had a I had a great time in the five years I was in Beirut. I spent the first year studying Arabic, uh, but uh, during uh, the other four years, I was uh, engaged in a lot of 
deception operations. I had mentioned the one to you previously, which was in, uh, helping in the breakup of the Lebanese Communist Party. Yes, and this was this was sort of propaganda and, and propaganda. classic propaganda. Black propaganda, black operations. We did a, a, a and I was responding to requests from other stations and also headquarters. We we published a book in Beirut on the KGB use of the Moscow and Rodney Bank as a cover mechanism uh, with pictures of the KGB officers. <laughs> It was kind of interesting, but we did a lot of stuff like that, and so it was a lot we, of fun. So you, but interestingly, I just want to remind people: you, as a, as an agency officer, were both involved in, in intelligence collection—that is, what was going on in the local situation—as well as what we call covert action—that is, influence operations, propaganda, black propaganda. Yeah, I recruited a lot of sources in in organizations that we were interested in, particularly in the Palestinian organizations. One of the things, I, 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 I'm intrigued by this. Here you are, you graduated next to the bottom of your class, but you turned out to be a classic operator, both from the point of view of covert action as well as collection. So I'm asking you again, where do you think that comes from? I, I think the fact that I grew up in an orphanage might have something to do with you it. You grew up? In an orphanage. In an orphanage. And why Why do you think that might have played a role? Well, you know, you were it. I mean, as an orphan, uh, you, you, and also in an orphanage, it's, it's sort of an air of conspiracy anyway. You, you're always trying to out with the house parents. And um, I think it develops a way of thinking. But a strong, but it must have developed a strong survivor mentality. Yes, as yes. you say, you were it. You were on your own. So if something was going to happen, you had to make it happen, or be part of it, or or manipulate yeah. it. I, uh, I even led a revolution my senior year at the orphanage. Okay. Because of the treatment, and everyone told me after that that it really helped because uh, the. Um, the orphanage uh, adopted a policy of more lenient treatment of the, of the orphans. I, I, I'm intrigued by the fact you were running propaganda operations even in the orphanage, George. So <laughs> I, I think that's great. It was and, a good orphanage. Yeah. Where was it? In Hershey, Pennsylvania. Her, Hershey, Pennsylvania. It's no longer an orphanage because yeah. the ACL is, ACLU has pretty much done away with them. Yeah. Sometime in the late 60s, you headed up what what were called in CIA denied area operations. We used that term yes. to run operations in places where we're under surveillance 24-7. Uh, we had to engage in impersonal forms of communication, dead drops, encoded materials in places like the Soviet Union and Bulgaria and so forth and so on. But you ran similar operations in the Middle East. What was that like? Did, was that similar to the operations run in, in, in the the sort of Soviet-denied area, the Soviet bloc, as we called it? Uh, we didn't have, we did not have the real difficulties that uh, our officers had in the bloc. Um, I, um, the denied areas were really Syria and Iraq. And I focused mainly on Iraq. And we were able to do some surprisingly good things. You know, one, as you know, Peter, one of the problems back then 
was uh, Covcom, Covert Communications, uh, uh, you know, SW, which yes. uh, is shortwave radio, shortwave radio, yeah. HF, <clears throat> HF uh, and uh, the old RS-48 and 49 radios where you only had a limited <clears throat> amount of encrypted text. So I think it was like 300, char 300 characters. And uh, but we got reporting uh, from uh, what one of the bi our big interests is when um, what Mullah Mustafa was doing, and um, we um, we had uh, a couple of assets that we were running. Uh, one one in particular who was reporting by. Uh, uh, RS-49 radio, and good stuff, but it was limited. Uh, also, I think our biggest accomplishment when I was running the, uh, when I was in charge of that branch, was we um, recruited an officer who was in at the beginning of uh, let's say, the weapons of mass destruction, the uh, Iraqi attempts uh, to um, put together this, what this guy was in, was in chemical warfare. And uh, we actually got samples of various gases that the Russians gave to the Iraqis. This would have been around when, George? This was in 19... 1969. But you were gaining this intelligence in Beirut. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, mm -hmm. We had uh, a relative of this officer who, who could travel back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a classic example of intelligence gathering in which you're learning something about one country and its development of, an, of a weapon of mass destruction through a source in another country who's able to travel back and forth. And I, I, I just... Sometimes people don't quite understand that this happens all the time. That for us, was Iraq still an open area for us, or was that a denied area? Oh, it was a denied. Uh, we we lost everything in the '67 war. In the '67 war, yeah, we had no one in there. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, from Beirut, what what was next? Back to headquarters, or did you go on then? Well, I, after I came back to. In 68, I came back to headquarters, and I was put in charge of denied area operations, basically Syria and Iraq. And then in 1970, I was sent to Islamabad as the deputy chief of station. And that was an operational paradise. It was Islamabad. How long were you there? Three years. I got when Dick Helms, uh, you know, refused to cooperate with Nixon. Yes. After the over Watergate. Water yeah. Yeah. Uh, what they did is he, he was he was fired, but then assigned to uh, Iran as ambassador. And I got remember the old telepouches. I got a telepouch from headquarters. This was what we were the dispatch, a written yeah, document, yeah, yeah. Uh, <coughs> a type document uh, from Waller, who was the, who was the chief of the division at the time, and said that Dick Helms and I have decided it's time for you to go back to Tehran. <laughs> And that was in August of 1973. So we packed up and went went to Tehran and spent uh, three years there. What, during his tenure, during Dick during, Helms. During, during yeah. Dick's, and I got to know him very well. 
from from Tehran then, that would have been what year? 73 to 76, roughly? Yes. I left in 76. By that time, um, the uh, Mujahideen Khalq had sworn to kill me and almost did one night. They trapped me and uh, I knew what was going on. It was the only time I was unarmed. And the reason is, is that I had gone to Beirut. This was in um, July of 1975. I'd gone to Beirut because things were really getting bad, that were really bad at that time, and they wanted me to come back and recontact some of my old sources, which I did, although this was some difficulty. <laughs> and, um, and uh, then I flew back on July the 15th. And what we didn't know at that time is that um, there was a cell of the MEK operating within the U.S. mission. They had a, a man in the consulate who was the highest thought of local in the consulate. Turned out he hated Americans. Uh, they had a, another, and he was the head of the cell. They had another cell member in the embassy mailroom, and then they had another cell member who was a very valuable guy. He was worked in for the U.S. military in logistics, and his office was located in the motor pool. So he knew he could check on when cars were being sent to pick up people, and the addresses and everything else. And what he found out that, that I was going to be picked up at the airports. So he alerted uh, other members of the of the MEK, and they put together an attempt to get me. Uh, I was driving home on Niavaran Avenue. That's the, at that time, was the northernmost road, paved road in Tehran. And all at once, this Dishaval car pulled in front of my car and forced the driver to stop. And of course, I immediately looked to my rear because this is they get your attention in the front and the guys with the guns were behind you. And there was three guys in a Mercedes. I did manage to get the numbers. I yelled at the driver, go straight to the Shah's palace because they knew me, the guards knew me. And the Mercedes followed me. The gal took off on a side road and I pulled into the up to the palace gates, yelled at the guards, the Mercedes as M.E.K., and they pulling, they were off their right, they, and it followed me. And um, as soon as the guys in the Mercedes um, saw the um, guards unlimbering their rifles, they took off. So I was lucky. Could you just give our listeners uh, a, a, a few comments on the nature of the M.E.K., the group that was trying to assassinate you? The um, MEK uh, was formed uh, in the 1969 to 1970 period. They mounted their first operation in 1970 when they raided a police station, Siakel, in a village in north north of Tehran, to get arms uh, and ammunition. Uh, they they their targets were significant people in the intelligence establishment, uh, the Iranian intelligence, and, and the royal family. Uh, 
Also, uh, they were after Americans. They killed the total of, Ameri of six Americans during the period of late 1972 to through 76. And um, they also successfully, the first IED, remotely detonated IED, was done in Tehran in early 1973, and the, the street was under repair. And there was an American general who went, used that street to go to work. And these guys were able to, posing as, <clears throat> posing as uh, road workers, placed, in, uh, placed a, a bomb in the street. And then the following morning, when General Price was driving to work, they a guy on a bicycle detonated the bomb and uh, General Price was not killed but he was he was crippled for life. Was that a homegrown device or had it been given to them by the, from outside? Yes, they uh, were great <laughs> followers of the Brazilian uh, urban terrorist Carlos uh, Marangela. They actually translated his book in Farsi. And um, so they tried to do everything themselves. Uh, they also, we uncovered, the guys in the embassy had proposed a plot to blow up Dick Helms in his office, which we uncovered. They were going to have the um, commercial library was under Dick's office. They even, and since these guys worked in the embassy, they bought in civil engineers to uh, to look and they showed him where his home office was and then and right below where he sat were these cupboards and they were f full of commercial newspapers and they'd have the ones the current ones on top and then they when they get the next days they put them underneath and what they were going to do was have female members of the mech go into the because it was easy to get into go in to do research and while they were there they would take sheets of plastic explosives and put them in between these uh, papers. And the civil engineer decided, he said, he said, you know, there are two things you have to consider. And one is, it's going to take a hell of a lot of plastic explosives uh, to really make sure that you get helms. And also, to get that amount of plastics, you're going to have an awful lot of collateral damage. Now, one thing that the um, mech didn't want to do is kill innocent people. For instance, they killed a major, a SAVAC major, who was an interrogator. They stopped his car, and he had his, he had his uh, daughter was in the car. They told the daughter that uh, her father had been uh, tried and convicted and was going to be executed and told her to go, and then they killed the father. So they did not want collateral damage. Um, they killed, uh, shortly after the Price incident, they killed a lieutenant colonel who used to walk to work, guy on a motorcycle. Did a man. Their favorite weapon was the um, Czech Scorpion because it was, you know, it was, uh, it was, on a, it was like a machine pistol. And it was easily concealed under a coat. And then they killed, they later killed two colonels. But 
what we did uh, after we got well organized, uh, we would in, we would investigate. And we had people who report everything, and we would investigate, and we would show ourselves. And once we tried to trap them, but uh, they didn't show up. We were well armed. We were one guy. They were they were they had been casing one guy's house, and uh, we were well armed, and we were ready for them to come. Uh, but they must have they must have seen something because they they didn't they they called on. They would actually every time we showed up somewhere that they were casing, they would call off. Uh, it's surprising how few operations they mounted, considering all the capabilities that they had. I hope you enjoyed this first part of my interview with George Cave. Please join us soon for part two, when he will discuss, among other things, his view of the Iran-Contra affair. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.